the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript listeners, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Westminster Theological Center. I'm co-host of the podcast with Matt Bates of Quincy University in Illinois, Aaron Heim of Denver Seminary, and Drew Johnson, who claims that he teaches at the King's College in New York City, but that has not yet been fact-checked. But that's not all. In this episode, we announce yet another co-host for OnScript, and he's been on the show before. Chris Tilling, a true blue Brit is now co-hosting with us, or at least he'll try if he can keep the man flu at bay. Uh, He's from St. Melitis here in the UK, so why don't you join me in mocking Chris as he uh, joins the podcast. Uh, But seriously, Chris, we are glad, very glad to have you aboard, and I hope that all of you enjoy the Q&D episode because these are your questions after all. Here we go. Okay, welcome OnScript listeners to the third ever OnScript Q&D episode. That's question and discussion because we don't give all the answers. That's for you to work out. Um, We are here today with a full house of OnScript co-hosts. We have Matt Bates and Aaron Heim and Drew Johnson and Chris Tilling. Now you might be wondering, hey, is Chris Tilling now a co-host? And the answer to that is he's always been a co-host. Um, so, Chris, uh, thanks for uh, being part of this and the OnScript team. Oh, it's such an honor, guys, to be involved with you lot. I kind mm-hmm. of feel as though I have been journeying with you, you know, for, mm-hmm. through this for quite a while. But I'm just, I'm honestly, I'm a bit of both. I'm one of those those faithful listeners as well. Yeah, Chris, it is an honor for you to join. So, uh, <laughs> th- thank you. Um, okay, for the Q&A, how do you all combat cynicism? if you struggle with it, when dealing with scholarship that downplays the uniqueness of Yahweh in the Old Testament, and let's say uh, New Testament as well, just just to be inclusive. Uh, specifically, discussions of Yahweh's similarities to pagan gods that the Israelites were surrounded by. So who wants to, who wants to take this one? Well, Noah, let me bring some relief to you. That was, thank you. <laughs> Only the Hebrew Bible guy laughed. Um, it's a bad joke. Uh, so, um, I, I mean, I would say I'm very interested to hear your, your all's reaction to that question as well. Um, I don't have cynicism, and maybe it's uh, an inoculation factor that I'm constantly reading things that I don't always agree with uh, or that I need to critically think through. I think this addresses a question that comes up later as well. Um, I actually, when I read those things, I strongly consider what they have to say and whether that's the case or not, uh, or whether that is a possible, um, you know, realistic interpretation of, of what has happened. And uh, I mean, there is a formation in the in the collective consciousness of uh, Israel, uh, in the literary consciousness of Israel, of who Yahweh is and how they're going to describe him. Uh, and so it's obviously going to interact uh, with their views of other gods as as well. Uh, and um, so for me, those aren't, uh, I, I don't know, faith issues. Those are just uh, critically thinking through what's going on in the text, what's going on in the world that creates the text issues. Um, so I guess so what you're saying then, Drew, is that, that they're separate issues for you. Is that right? That on the one hand, cynicism, I mean, cynicism is something we can all um, fall into, but it's not connected, is what you're saying, to that particular issue. Is that right? That they're two different issues? Well, I mean, if somebody wanted to say, which I've heard people say this, that, you know, this this God, Yah, is being borrowed and played upon here, therefore Yahweh is not real, it's just a part of the, fic- uh, the fictional imagination of the Hebrew literature, then I'll, I'll say, no, I actually, I don't think that that necessarily has to be the case. And I don't think anything you've said is evidence for that as, as the case necessarily. So they're not completely unconnected for me. Uh, I, I guess my question is what kinds of claims you're making based on the evidence. And I constantly have to point out to my students that there's not really any Hebrew literature outside of the Hebrew Bible. 
I mean, we get little bits. We get ostraca and shards and, and little bits here and there, but we're all basically looking at the same evidence and assessing how it came to be. So, every, in other words, everybody has a hypothetical author, including evangelicals. Um, so, so I, 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 I don't know. It just fits in part of my normal critical um, how I'm thinking about uh, the world of the text scheme when I read these people. And I, I value it. I want somebody to push me on that front, maybe show me something I haven't thought of before. Uh, uh, Aaron and Matt, um, if if you didn't know, uh, Yahweh is the, the name for the God of, uh, in, in, wow. in the Old Wait, Testament. When they, so oh, I didn't know if you had. is all so, in caps? So if, if you want to jump in. Does that mean that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pronounced the lard. <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. It's a good thing we're joint hosting this podcast between New now, Testament do you have, and Old Do you guys Testament have any... Th- Sure, I'll I'll jump in. I mean, for me, in terms of thinking about these topics of Yahweh's uniqueness or things like that, I, um, of course, I'm eager to think about the incarnation and just sort of the historical reality of of the Christian faith, the Jewish Christian faith, uh, in that sense, and to realize that God reveals Himself in real space, real time, to real people who had a real matrix of understanding of other gods and uh, a whole world that Yahweh was disrupting by revealing himself so that I wouldn't expect uh, God to be able to reveal himself in such a way that people couldn't understand it. There had, there had to be a sort of an accommodation. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, would, I would think similarly when we, we think about um, you know, the incarnation, there's a certain kind of uh, accommodation to our, our human structures uh, that's happening uh, whenever we think about the nature of Revelation as a whole. So for me, um, if God had uniquely revealed himself, he would have been completely unintelligible. And, um, and we can't make sense of God's revelation as um, a unique event in that kind of way. Yeah, I would agree with what Matt just said. And, and to add to that, this idea of cynicism is maybe one that, um, as, as somebody who is both a New Testament scholar and then a woman, and then also would identify as an evangelical, it's really easy to be cynical. And I know that that's not the direction that the question is going, but it's one that I've had to struggle with um, as my, you know, as my journey into to scholarship has gone. And I think, um, I think honestly, the, the thing that keeps me uh, from becoming cynical is just a, an, un, like, an insatiable curiosity to understand my subject matter, to understand the scriptures better, um, to, to keep working cross-disciplinary, um, in cross-disciplinary context, to keep having good discussions with Old Testament scholars who tell us important things like Yahweh is the God of the Bible. Thank you for that. And, uh, and also with theologians, uh, just, I, can't, I can't become cynical because there's too much to know and there's too much to be interested in. Yeah, and if, if people are interested in kind of digging into this more, uh, I, I thought of there's, a, there's an article by Peter Machinist, who's a, a scholar of uh, Syriology at Yale, I think. And, Harvard. Um, Harvard, yeah. And um, he, uh, it's called On the Question of Distinctiveness in Ancient Israel. And, and so he, you know, that, that's a good example of someone who's wrestling, who, who, who knows the data better than anyone in terms of, of ancient Near Eastern context, uh, but then is, is able to pull back and say, okay, what is it that, it, can we talk about distinctiveness? Because I think if you take, if you take any single point um, there's always going to be some cross-cultural parallel. And I think that gets to the point that Matt and Aaron made of like cultural intelligibility, like this, this made sense in that world. Um, but, it's, but, but you can't think of distinctiveness just on a case-by-case basis, but rather the whole. Like what is it uh, on the whole that, that, that distinguishes uh, the God of Israel? And um, so Machinist talks about a configuration of, of traits that, that would distinguish um, Israel from from other gods, and um, and his his point was that it, it's um, it's the self conscious recognition that they had a unique relationship with God that actually distinguishes Israel, <laughs> uh, which I think is a, a really interesting point. And then uh, there's a Old Testament scholar named Robert Gordon who who picked up on that. Um, I can't remember the name of his article, but he 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 follows that point further. And I I think for me, like in terms of cynicism. Um, it like being grounded in a in a church community is another thing to me that's that's really important um, because 
it, and being grounded in a way that's like I'm actually integrated and not just sort of showing up and and sitting as a critic of say the Sunday sermon or something like that, um, and that keeps keeps me immersed in the living uh, nature of of um, what it is I'm studying that I also carry into my work, um, and and I, I remember one of my one of my professors saying that if you if you bracket out uh, questions of kind of faith and belief um, indefinitely, then those things become implausible. So I think I think there's a sense in which cynicism can lead to can follow from studying in a purely historical way or subject matter. But that's why you know I think it's important to be grounded. Okay, let's should we move on to the next question? Um, this is from Jason Van Hazelen. I'd be interested to hear uh, you guys discuss the relationship between biblical studies and theology. What work, if any, needs to be done in this area? Why can't we all just get along? I, I'd imagine Aaron has uh, some. <laughs> you know, I sometimes joke that I got the wrong PhD because I I like Greek and I like history, but I actually think I'm maybe more wired like a theologian, and so uh, I feel like an interloper a lot of times in my department at work uh, because I'm more I'm more drawn to those conversations. Yet, I want to affirm that the disciplines are are different. They've taken different tracks. So um, I, I don't know why we can't just get along, but apparently we can't. <laughs> um, I, um, I, I've done a little bit of thinking about this, what it means um, with the theological interpretation of scripture movement. There's this call to do, um, to do biblical studies theologically. And uh, there's this call from theologians to do that and some biblical scholars. And then um, I, I thought about, well, what does it mean to do uh, biblical, stu- biblical studies theologically? And I think, I think it gets down to thinking through our, our framework, our epistemology, and not, and not sort of capitulating to either methodological or metaphysical naturalism as we go about the study of the text, but actually understanding in my view, that we have to approach this um, recognizing that we start, we start, we have to start with first things. And I don't know that biblical scholars have always been very good about recognizing the the framework in which they're working, and then they add theology in at the back end. Um, maybe, maybe in some sense, I think a little bit illegitimately in in a way that they haven't they haven't argued for at the beginning. So, I'd like to see us be more careful about that. Uh, while hanging on to the things that I think are really helpful about biblical studies, like sound, rigorous, uh, historical method, um, ancient contexts are important. And I think uh, if, you know, if Jesus is revealed in the incarnation in history and is, it, and is historically contingent, then we have to be good historians. I don't think there's any way around that. <laughs> um, I, I do think um, this is Drew speaking. Um, I, I, always teach this in class in hermeneutics that you move from biblical studies to biblical theology to theology. That would be the, you know, if, if you wanted an order that you wanted to move, of course, the entire time you're doing biblical studies, you're already, as Aaron said, you already have epistemological presuppositions, metaphysical presuppositions that inform your biblical studies and your view of history. I'll give one plug because I think it's going to be very good as I'm, I'm pre-reading, um, Tom Wright's doing the, um, Gifford lectures here coming up next month, uh, at Aberdeen, uh, on and he's the first New Testament scholar since Rudolf Bultmann uh, to give them in 1955, um, and so he's going to be dealing with the, the issue of natural theology, uh, where he's really it, it's uh, obviously the Gifford lectures is about natural theology, but he's he's kind of taking theology head on uh, with history and the view of history and scripture, uh, and I've read the first five lectures and they are stupendous uh, so far. He's he's a uh, He's he's striking out anew, I would say here. So uh, this isn't this isn't just r- stuff that's buried throughout all of his other books. Uh, some of it is certainly. I mean, yeah. there's very recognizable spiels as anybody who's written that much uh, is going to have. But uh, it, it was also interesting. I mean, I was at the Logos Institute all this year, and I mean, this is the this is the aegis of the institute is to work out the exegetical and analytic theology, the relationship between those two. Uh, and I would say it was often um, Tom Wright and I and Scott Haferman in the back of the room, very frustrated when the theologians were speaking. Um, well, uh, their appropriation of Scripture or their neglect of Scripture or the thought that a, a theological concept is robust when it derives from kind of a Hellenistic Enlightenment tradition. 
and, and not considering that there might be a Semitic tradition in the Hebrew Bible uh, where that, that same notion is developed and might be, you know, it might argue with the way they're thinking about the world. You know, like something like omnipresence, right? You, you turn to the Hebrew scripture and you're like, boy, they certainly just don't seem to have a, a view of omnipresence. In fact, they might have a very opposite view of the presence of Yahweh. Um, and so you would just want that to inform anybody who's going to make a case for a classical omnipresence, right? Um, and so when you pe- see people ignoring it, and not intentionally, they just don't, it's not part of their, their, their MO. Um, and so, uh, you know, we would always, there's a set of us that would always just kind of lob the same grenade at them in the Q&A uh, section. I should also say they were often very frustrated when a biblical scholar was up there giving a talk on, on some topic as well. So it went both ways. But the whole goal was to try and work out some of these issues. And I would just say, I would agree, there is, there is a long, long way to go. Uh, but I think it's worth going. Yeah, I think this is why Erin, um, what she said about, um, you know, maintaining some kind of balance here is, is so important. Because uh, on the one hand, as a as a biblical scholar, I, I very much appreciate what you've just said, Drew. Um, yet on the other hand, um, there are times when I will read biblical scholarship. Let's say, for example, um, certain strands of, of Jesus questing from the 90s and, and early 2000s. It can be premised on the idea that Jesus is lost and that we need to find him. Um, and this is where I think theological presuppositions inevitably play a role. You, you know, Jesus isn't lost, and this is one of the big things that John Webster um, made in his own theological work, is that we are the contemporary of Jesus Christ. And, and to assume that Jesus is lost and we therefore need to seek him is a theological commitment um, underpinning a program that is actually heretical. And so I think, you know, this is, there's an, there needs to be a bit of balance here. And Sam Adams, I think, um, has written a very interesting book on all of this. What's it called? The Reality of God and Historical Method. And I know he comes from a very different place from Tom Wright. He critiques Tom in that book. Um, but that would be a, an important conversation partner to add. I mean, I just think as well, when, when we're reading scripture and we... None of us come to scripture theologically neutral. I mean, this is a really trite example, but... I, how we engage in life is theologically informed in ways that can be shocking sometimes. When I was in St Andrews as an undergrad, I drove through a puddle. I, I was I I saw somebody on the pavement and I drove through the puddle and I covered them with the puddle, and I I thought it was hilarious. I think it might be illegal, um, uh, but um, the the guy was waving a fist at me in in the mirror and I was laughing my head off. Anyway, fast forward a few years later. And I now live in Battersea, and I was wandering, walking past a large puddle, and without really me even thinking about it, I thought, God's going to get me back. And and so I thought, and all of this was going on in the somewhere dark, deep down, I thought, okay, I'm going to walk faster to scupper God's plans to get me back. And and so I've, I actually walked faster so that, you know, the omniscient God couldn't possibly figure out, oh, oh, drat, missed him. And and that was their implicit theology, right, at work. Obviously, when I stopped and thought about what I'd just done, I sort of realised it was bonkers. But articulating theology, then, is just as important when we're reading scripture. And because it's in play, whether we know it or not, and it can be helpful whether or, or not. Yeah, I don't. I don't really. This is Matt Bates. I don't really have anything profound to add. Um, I, I think excellently covered this, you know, systematic and uh, biblical studies ugly ditch. I, I think that you've all offered helpful suggestions for how to bridge it. But I, I do have to say that Drew, whenever you said that uh, Wright in his Gifford lectures was striking out anew. Uh, or a fresh, whatever you said. Um, boy, that's a mixed metaphor, uh, depending on whether you're a baseball player or whether you're marching forward, right? <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> okay, okay. Sorry, mine are always military analogies. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that one of, one of the kind of related questions for me is um, whenever – uh, in the material I've read on theological interpretation of scripture, and I, I think I read like a theological manifesto recently, I can't remember the title of the book, um, but th- the stuff I've read in that area has often been very theory heavy, but then I, I kind of wonder, well, okay, what what is the difference that it makes in terms of a reading, an actual interpretation of scripture, or is that 
kind of the wrong the wrong question. Was that an actual question? <laughs> I thought it worked better as a rhetorical question. Yeah, I, well, I, I wanted a, um, I wanted a dramatic pause after oh. the question. I'm, I'm sorry, um, we can go back to the pause. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. I, I feel like sometimes I straddle uh, the world of the academy and the church because I'm married to a pastor. So um, when you talk about not being cynical on a Sunday morning and critiquing the Sunday sermon, uh, that would that would cause some pretty big domestic disputes in my household if I did that week in and week out. Um, but we actually, uh, my husband and I minister in a pretty interesting church in Denver. We live in a, a neighborhood in Denver that's experienced some um, really difficult um, socioeconomic issues, has some racial tension. Our church was founded by conscientious objectors during World War II. So we have this group of you know Mennonites in the midst of what can be a rather violent neighborhood. And um, and I've had to think about what it means to be a biblical scholar who's also in ministry in that context. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, that's a theological presupposition. What does it mean to do scholarship for that body of believers? And it does change how you read scripture. If you're, if you're conscientiously putting yourself in that role saying, I'm, I'm going to do this for my church, um, all of a sudden things come out in the text that I don't, I don't know that I would have seen if I were just kind of steeped in the academy. And uh, last year, I presented a paper at SBL on that question about what it means to do scholarship for my church and on Matthew 15. And it it just caused me, and I called it like learning to read Matthew 15 as a white girl on Mango Street because our neighborhood is Latino. And it made me see all these interesting dynamics in the text. Like um, there's this, you know, this idea that the religious elite from Jerusalem comes, you know, down into the Galilee with the common people. And you realize that all of a sudden, like the incarnational presence of Jesus has the same kind of dynamic in that text as it does in my neighborhood where you... You know, it'd be good if people from the suburbs who think that they have the corner on theological um, truths, theological and, and, you know, right interpretation of scripture or in the academy came down to see what this looks like in my neighborhood. You'd see some really different things in the text. So I think our theology can inform, especially if it's practical theology and you actually live what you're what you're reading instead of just kind of being in our ivory towers. Yeah, I, I would like to, you know, just. This kind of goes back to exactly what Aaron was saying, but it kind of this will bleed into the violence question, which I don't know if I'll be around for the violence question. But I mean, I do have this open question along the exact same str- the Mango Street she was talking about. Uh, when we're interpreting violence in Scripture, if if we actually have no contact uh, with systemic, durative, violent cultures, corrupt cultures, I really do question whether we can properly ask the right theological questions of the text concerning violence. Uh, and I think most of us in the West really have no contact with those cultures. And I do wonder whether in, in these kind of uh, situations, um, uh, whether we should defer theologically, whether we should say, you know, let's let's go to our brothers and sisters who actually have experienced systemic war violence and see how they read these texts um, and let them help us see things that we probably would not have seen otherwise. Yeah, one of, one of my colleagues at, at WTC, uh, Bob Eckblad, uh, Matt, you you also probably know him. Um, he he's got a great book called "Reading the Bible with the Damned," and and of course Bob works with uh, Latino um, migrant workers in Washington State, and he uh, is is a prison chaplain with with a lot of the uh, people who end up um, in uh, gang violence and so on. And and his his way of reading scripture is. Well, first of all, it's very informed by liberation theology, um, but it's also just sitting around with a, a, a group of guys in a prison, um, many of whom come out of gangs or currently in gangs, and and in a kind of dialogical way going through the text and saying and, and asking critical questions along the way. And the insights are absolutely brilliant um, that they come so up, up with. So I think... I think like that gets at the the contextual nature of biblical interpretation and and I think to Aaron's point about like part of the question is what what context are we reading this in and how does that uh shape our our um interpretation but then also there's the question of like how our theological presuppositions inform our actual interpretation of the text and that 
that to me is another kind of related question. Should we get to the violence question? Where was that one? Let's do the book question. Get it lighthearted. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So Tommy uh, Molman asked, what has been the best book you've read in your field of study in the last year? And uh, another related question is which direction should toilet paper, uh, Chris, that's Lou roll, uh, hang on on the holder? Should it be under or over? Who thinks it should go under? Oh, my Let's start word. With that second Are question. you people by barbarians? Like, clearly the answer is over. In my household, it's just um, uh, a great mercy if anybody actually just puts the thing on. I, I have six kids, you know, and uh, half the time I go in to use the bathroom, uh, the toilet paper is missing entirely. You know, and uh, and so if anyone just takes the time to suspend it on the roll, uh, I'm grateful. Um, to quote the great movie Madagascar, <laughs> who wipes? Mm. That's a good question. Well, I, Drew, I think the, to to make a serious point, I think the question itself reflects a very kind of Western privileged perspective um, of, of people who have access to to toilet paper. And, um, oh, you know, uh, colonialists you know, that he would even get privileged. Yeah, right? it's, it's there's yeah, colonialist bent well, that there's a right I, I suggest, way and you must do it. I mean, we, I suggest we learned you this all, from Chris uh, maybe you should consider undertaking people, solidarity so. with the less privileged, um, you know, for uh, the next couple of months and see how that works out with uh, works out for you. Hey, if you haven't done a two foot hole in the ground squat uh, style latrine before or over a, uh, a plastic bag over a barrel out in the field, um, then oh, I'm not sure you um, really pooped. I, I had an experience once. I, I don't think well, – actually, you know what? I love I where this now. is going, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, I, it's one of those things where I'm like, wait a second. I'm not, ju- I'm not, just, I'm not just talking to four friends. Right. Like this is, this is going to be on air. So I'm just going um, to leave that as a, a pregnant gap. Hmm. <laughs> My wife will thank me for uh, for holding holding back there. Okay, so we, we've esta- we've established that there's some like real kind of cultural socioeconomic questions behind that question that probably need to be answered first, um, and, and and also like familial questions about like um, you know whether whether we can get everyone sort of even putting it on the holder. But let's uh, how about the best book uh, that that we've read in our field of study in the last year. Chris, you want to talk about chess? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to talk about chess. Uh, definitely. My favorite has to be Tactic Mania by Glenn Fleer, but I'm presuming that not everybody's going to be interested in that one. No, no, we're all interested, Chris. Thank you. Uh, uh, fair enough. Um, you know, it's a difficult question, though, isn't it? Because best book or most interesting book, and those two don't always overlap. That There are those books that... that provoke me to rethink uh, an awful lot and I end up disagreeing with the author considerably uh, so I'd say I'd say one of the most important books for me in the last year was um, Matthew Thiessen's book um, Paul and the Gentile Problem it it, um, it caused me to go back particularly to, to Galatians with a whole set of questions I hadn't really addressed before that said, was it the best book that I read? It's that's that's difficult to say. Was it, in other words, the book that most resonated with with me, or or, or gave me the set of answers that I most resonated with? No, it didn't. And um, so that would be probably the most interesting one. But the best one, well, that's that's another book entirely, and it is just about to be published. And I think we're going to come onto this chap a little bit later on. That's um. Douglas Campbell's um, book, Paul and Apostle's Journey, which has just been published. And Doug Harrink on the back cover goes as far to say that it's the best book on Paul since Acts, which I think is going a little bit too far. Um, but um, that was a lot of fun, that book. <laughs> well, Chris, why? <laughs> why was it going too far? Because no, no, I why, what, no, why was the book so good? <laughs> oh, what's this so good? I was about to say, I haven't read every book on Paul since Acts. Um, the, yeah, uh, it's a good book because he does a tremendous job appealing to a wide audience. It's written at a very popular level. It's uh, richly theologically informed, but also um, informed by his massive work on Paul's contingency, particularly his 
um, his journeys and the order of the letters and so on. Uh, so it will appeal to people in a local church as much as um, New Testament professors who haven't asked some of the questions that he's asking. All right, Aaron, what's your uh, what's your best book? Um, boy, you know, the best book that I read... Again, and it falls in the interesting category. I think might have been. It's been out for. I think it was published in 2015. But I read Cynthia Westfall's book this year on Paul and gender, and I really appreciate how she's reframed that question to not just deal with the silencing texts that get, um, you know, thrown at women to get us to stop talking, uh, but um, she's reframing it to look at how Paul is using gendered language. Um, gendered language more holistically. So she looks at where he, uh, Paul uses masculine metaphors um, at, and is applying them to the entire body of, of Christ. So what does it mean for a woman to be, you know, contending like an athlete or, um, you know, where Paul says, like, act like a man, and it always gets translated, you know, be strong or be courageous, but that's not what he says. He says, act like a man. And I, I just find that, that approach really helpful, and it broadens a conversation that I think needs to be needs to be much broader than it has been uh, in well, whatever, maybe. Yeah, that's a, a really a really challenging question. Um, I have to identify what my field is to be able to answer it. I, I suppose um, I'm a New Testament scholar. Um, yeah, I, I, I certainly have enjoyed a lot of the ones that I've done for on script. Um, I think one of the ones that surprised me, um, again, and this would sort of be on the fringes of my field, um, uh, I really did enjoy Fred Sanders' book. Uh, was it called The Triune God? Or um, it's on my shelf somewhere. I should be able to find it. Um, it's something about the Trinity, uh, but uh, yeah, it's The Triune God. Um, he, yeah, his book I think really uh, caught me off guard a little bit in, in terms of its sophistication. It, it has a lot of new proposals I think for systematicians, biblical scholars to consider. Uh, it's really a rich study, and I think that I was expecting something more textbooky from it, uh, and not something so rich in new proposals that graduate students, um, professional scholars should consider. So I, I, I'll, I'll answer with uh, with that. I, I do like that one an awful lot. All right, let's keep uh, going to the next one. Um, oh, Drew, did you? I did not. Mine are not biblical books, <laughs> strangely enough. Mine are, um, again, interesting versus best. Interesting would have been Mark Vandermeer's, uh philosophy before the Greeks, so talking about uh, Babylonian philosophy. Um, and uh, and then the, the the best one I've read is, is Pierre Hadot's uh, What is Ancient Philosophy, where... He makes an argument that Greek philosophy has always been practice, not talk oriented, um, which is which is not a highly controversial thesis, but it was very interesting. That's all part of I've been working a lot on the intellectual world of scripture as compared to the ancient Near East and the Hellenistic world. So that's kind of been up my alley lately. Yeah, I think for me, um, Ian Provin's book, uh, The Reformation, The Right Reading of Scripture, was probably the most provocative um, an interesting book that I've I've read in my field in the last year, um, and and I think he 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 makes a really good case that the reformers were were not kind of stepping out in a, an entirely new direction in their commitment to the literal sense of scripture, um, which he defines in that book, and it doesn't mean literalistic interpretation. Um, so that that for me was a was a really uh, interesting book. Um, Okay. All right. No, another question here. I'd like to hear, someone said, who is this? Anyway, um, I'd like to hear you interview Douglas Campbell. Have you read The Deliverance of God? Uh, Matthew Bates, I know you have, as you refer to it in Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Uh, and what do you make of his rereading and reframing of Romans? So, Matt, why don't, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, Douglas Campbell. Um, he's provocative. He's brilliant. Um, he's the kind of person I go to to, I think, uh, be shaken up and get new insights, nuggets of truth everywhere, and of, um, yeah, of of sound exegesis. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't know that he's the person I would go to as a system builder. Would be my overall impression, and in particular, I'm, I'm not convinced of his reading of Romans. Uh, in which he finds uh, hidden uh, a sort of that Paul's own discourse is in the discourse of uh, of actually one of Paul's opponents, and that Paul has unmarked places 
where he's um, appealing to somebody, uh, that he's putting somebody's words that he disagrees with, but in a sort of unmarked way. I haven't found that part of his thesis convincing, and that, that controls a fair bit of his reading in places. Um, so I, I'm continuing to think through how I appropriate, appropriate Campbell's work as a whole, as there's so much going on there. It's such a massive project. Um, but certainly, um, Campbell's a very worthwhile sparring partner and uh, and uh, uh, an outstanding biblical scholar and theologian. So, Chris, you're you're kind of more sympathetic to Campbell's perspective on Romans, is that right? Yeah, probably that's fair to say. Yeah. So, what's your um, if you had to summarize like what you make of his rereading of Romans? Well, you know, I've been wrestling too for years with with deliverance of God. I mean, it was one of the reasons I published Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul um, as part of that process. Um, it's it's a very complicated um, um, argument he's rereading that's particularly difficult for biblical scholars to get their heads around because he's asking questions that many biblical scholars aren't trained to ask and don't even know how to begin to answer and particularly um, when it comes to theological coherence one of his main contributions to the field of Roman scholarship I think is to ask the question does the implied theology of conventional readings of Romans 1 to 4 um, map on to readings of Romans 5 to 8 or, or are we actually left with a hopelessly contradictory the uh, uh, Paul um, at a very deep level um, and those are the questions that he pursues in in deliverance of God and um, uh, and the result I mean positively the result is that you have um, a coherent Paul far more coherent than in other readings and and in many respects a, a kinder Paul um, that said, there are, you know, there have been numerous criticisms of his proposal. Some of them, I think, just unfair, which is, as I say, one reason why um, uh, we published Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul. Um, and, and some of those unfair criticisms continue to be repeated um, uh, until the present day. The idea that he's denying that God is just the idea that justification theory is a straw man. Well, you know, these things can be, I think, easily rebutted. Well, Chris, but that's there good, are some that, big questions involved yeah. as well. Yeah, and that's going to end today. <laughs> yeah, it's going to end today. Now, I want to settle all of these scores. Yeah. yeah but no, seriously, that. That there are some big questions, particularly the whole transition from Romans one seventeen to 18, which is unmarked. This is where he says that uh, Paul... Um, is now speaking in the voice of his opponent. Um, it's um, it's a Socratic deconstruction of his opponent's view. But this is unmarked and in Romans one eighteen. And in fact, all you've got is the particle gar, and that could lead to some problems. So you know there are some real issues that need to be wrestled here. Yeah, and it, it, I, I guess uh, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but it does raise a question about like what obligates a rhetorician to mark in a distinct way a transition in speech like that would be handy for us as interpreters right but um indeed yeah and um, that's one of his comebacks uh um uh, to that line of criticism aaron do you want to add anything since uh you know <laughs> i think he asks really interesting questions i think he's a really interesting i'll echo what matt said conversation partner i think i'm still working through um through the answers to those questions I, and i and i appreciate his perspective just because I, just because chris is exactly right we're not trained to ask the deeper coherence question i think we're and and i think it's a necessary one um i don't know if i'd answer it the same way that he would but um i i certainly have learned much from reading and, and thinking with douglas campbell and I, I think um, for me, like I've, I've picked up his book and read, I think, most of the back cover. And, um, <laughs> and I think um, I, I think on that basis, um, I'm in a position to pretty much agree with all of you. Um, although, you know, I, I probably would have some more nuanced and sophisticated ways of, of saying it. Um, OK, uh, l let's move on to. The question of historical criticism, Kenneth Paget asked, what is the role of historical criticism in your own exegesis and interpretation? 
Are there specific strengths and weaknesses of the method that expand or limit its use for you? Yeah, well, this is closely related to our, our previous discussion we were having about, you know, the role of um, theological approaches, you know, um, whether or not that's a distinctive method. Um, how much are we going to allow, for instance, um, our relatively fixed conclusions that we're convinced as Christians that, uh, that God is, in fact, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Um, how much are we going to allow that to inform the way we read the Old Testament or those kinds of questions are obviously where we're straining at the, uh, you know, at, at the limits of uh, where a theological reading might um, or might not mesh with a historical criticism. Uh, for me personally, I, I would see still historical criticism is pretty indispensable to almost everything that I do. Uh, words mean things, um, but I would see you know, that there are limits to saying that we can't have meaning in text beyond authorial intention. Um, but we still have to think these words were really ancient words that really meant um, certain things to ancient readers um, and uh, that there could be a surplus of meaning there. Uh, but we do need to be cautious about how we mobilize that. Uh, so for me, I, I find hi the historical critical method to be indispensable, but at the same time it maybe needs to be tempered by the sensibilities, especially of reception history and what we can learn from um, not just what came prior to a text, but what came afterwards as we bring that whole encyclopedia to bear on um, the, the kinds of questions that are raised by historical criticism. And I think that can um, help do some work uh, to bridge towards a more theological reading of Scripture, too. You know, I think I think that histor historical criticism and uh, theological uh, presuppositions, and, and I think both of those need to be subjected to some rigorous thought and reflection and how they work together. I did spend quite a bit of time this last, uh, this last fall preparing to give a paper on the use of the adoption text in contemporary discourse, evangelical discourse on adoption. And there was a place where I was really keenly aware of the lack of historical method that went into the theological synthesis of these texts and how dangerous it can be to draw theological conclusions when we haven't done the necessary historical work. Because the adoption practices in contemporary Western cultures are actually really different from what Paul is talking about with that metaphor. And if we just wholesale, you know, don't do the explanation behind it, we end up with some, I think, really dangerous theology that um, that actually can do some real-world harm to vulnerable children, um, or at least, and then adult adoptees, like psychological harm to them because of how we talk about it. And I think that a lot of that would be mitigated with careful historical work on the front end so that we don't end up with bad theology on the back end. Aaron, could you, uh, that's a really interesting point, could you uh, give an example of of where theologians have misread Paul by not attending to the historical context? Yeah, I mean, okay, so let's just talk about adoption. Um, so adoption in the ancient world is about adult males adopting other adult males to secure inheritance. And it doesn't do things that we tend to associate with adoption, like erasing previous history. Um, maybe there's a rescue dynamic in the text, but there's not necessarily a rescue dynamic in the in the practice of adoption in the um, in the ancient world. And I think just recognizing that Paul is talking about a very different practice should give us pause for, you know, wholesale talking about contemporary adoption in the same way that Paul is talking about adoption. I just, I think that that parallel is actually really inappropriate. And as an adoptee myself, I find it really damaging. Um, because, because, I don't want to talk about my adoptive parents as if they have rescued me. That's, that's a weird family dynamic. Um, and, and one that feels very invasive and, and inappropriate. And um, there's actually a good psych, um, a sociological study that I read this year in preparation for that, that paper that I get, gave, and I'm not going to remember the author's name. It's something about expanding God's family. Oh, gosh, sorry. Um, but it talks about how uh, people have been adopting for a long time, and they do so mostly because of... Um, mostly because of infertility, mostly because they want to expand their families. And what's happened with this evangelical adoption movement is that um, pe the, the people who are trying to mobilize uh, evangelicals to adopt really haven't succeeded in getting more people to, to be interested in adoption. But what they've done is gotten the people who are already probably going to adopt to adopt this very specific narrative about how they think about adoption and um, and I just think again, so much of this would be avoided if the if the people who are writing 
uh, literature in that area didn't map or didn't latch on to Paul's metaphor quite so tightly and then map it on to the contemporary practices because they're not it we're comparing apples and oranges they're not the same yeah and maybe another way of 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 seeing the whole issue of of the relationship between historical criticism and theology is to think about theological rationales for historical criticism and this is at least um a a, a british tradition jb card followed by tom wright and then a, most recently dale allison most eloquently will will speak about the the theological impulse provided by the incarnation uh for historical critical work uh, because the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, because we are dealing here with a first-century uh, Galilean Jew, because Christianity appeals to history, to history we must go. Um, so, you know, you can see how that line of argument works. The only danger, I think, well, maybe not the only one, but one major danger, the, the historical critical methodo- uh, uh, methodologies set the frame to ask a certain set of questions useful questions but historical critical methods don't necessarily or no cannot and do not answer all of the questions Um, they can only ask some relevant ones Hmm. yeah good all right let's uh let's move on to our last question which is well i'd like to hear everyone's thoughts on this all right all right uh i have a question this is from js warner uh recently matt lynch reviewed greg oh we skipped one i think uh, let me go back for a moment because I think we wanted to talk about this. Um, oh yeah, what is the what have been the books that you've struggled with the most with regard to interviewing the author? I I thought I picked up a lot of pushback during the Boyd uh, and Walton interview. Um, maybe I'll just touch on this real quick. Uh, I think I think yeah, listeners are correct if they picked up on pushback. And Matt, uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts here, but um, I know Matt and I definitely had pushback for Boyd uh, in his book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. It, it asks interesting questions, and it, I think he um, is, is looking the problem of violence in the Bible squarely in the face, which I think a lot of uh, scholars tend to gloss over when they're trying to solve the problem of violence. But I think for me... Um, one of the problems with his book was precisely the the degree to which he he went to resolve the problem of violence in the Bible, which I think in many ways is not one that we can we can simplistically um, resolve. Now his approach isn't simplistic, but I think it was totalizing in that it it provided an answer that pretty much took care of the whole problem. Um, and and if you picked up on pushback. Yeah, I think yeah, you're on the right track definitely. there, Matt. Um, and uh, Matt actually wrote a really helpful review um, of um, of Boyd's book on his uh, Theological Miscellanies uh, blog. So if you're looking for a fuller interaction, you can uh, Google that and check out Matt's um, more lengthy response to Boyd. But um, I, I think that you're right, and uh, uh, it was uh, Simon Mills who'd asked that question in, in detecting there are some uh, interviews we struggle more with uh, as uh, we want to have a charitable conversation, but we do also find ourselves as scholars in disagreement. Uh, and f- for me, I think that the upshot of Boyd's project is that ultimately he's saying that God allowed himself to be misrepresented in some way in the Old Testament as a violent God because this is a way of further absorbing the violence. Um, and I think that any time we start saying that the ways in which God revealed himself were deliberately such that they were a misrepresentation. Uh, that's a dangerous kind of argument that I'm, that I'm hesitant about, right? Um, there's a lot of great things Boyd does in the book, but um, that's the overall conclusion towards which he seems to be driving. And um, for me, that's a, that's a um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's the right answer. Yeah, I used a metaphor in one of the uh, parts of my review where I, there's this, I heard this story of a guy who um, he was trying to to clean off this this oil stain in his uh, garage, and so he he dumped a bunch of gasoline on the oil stain and and scrubbed it clean and fantastic. He got rid of the oil stain, shut the garage door, and the fumes filled the garage and the pilot light on his boiler ignited the whole garage. And burnt his whole house down, and it's a fairly dramatic um, 
metaphor, but but the point was that you know sometimes you have to look around sometimes when you solve one problem what what are the other things that you're blowing up in the process and and that's that's to me what what's concerning about a totalizing solution to one problem is that you you look you, you bang your head against the wall to solve that one thing um, and and you do so to such such an, an extent that you take down a lot of really important stuff in the process and i'm i'm not sure there was enough of that looking around in in what boy did Aaron and Chris, do you do you guys get the question a lot of violence in the Bible uh, from New Testament perspective? Yeah, I do, because uh, I'm the resident pacifist on the faculty. <laughs> so, uh, and I think um, I think Drew in that episode said, or um, somebody somebody in one of the episodes, now I can't remember who it was, said, if, you know, if you're not really a Christian, if you don't go through a pacifist phase at some stage. Well, I, you know, I've missed the memo because I've been a pacifist for a while. I'm pretty sure it's not just a, a phase anymore. And I am, um, and you know, and for me, it's not just a, um, it's not just a, a abstract theological con- construct because we actually live in a really violent neighborhood. Like I, and and and, um, and it's part of our witness as a as a you know Mennonite church. So I probably won't grow out of it. Sorry. Um, uh, to be committed to active peacemaking in this violent context. So, for example, in the first year we were there, my um, my husband, who's the pastor, uh, got a call uh, from our neighborhood group, and we had a uh, drive-by shooting a couple blocks from our house, and uh, it was a rival gang coming to to shoot a gang member, and um, and so our neighborhood wanted to organize a like a march against violence, um, peacemaking vigil. And so uh, my husband said, "Well, we'll host that. That's fine." But then he starts getting all these phone calls from um, from the gang members' family saying, "Well, can we come and participate in this?" So all these gang members show up at this this uh, march against violence, which was, and then all of these neighborhood people. And so they walk from our church building down to the park a couple blocks away where the man was shot. And my husband standing there is like, you know, he's the, the duly deputized pastor. Um, and what, what do you, what do you say to neighborhood people and gang members about violence in the neighborhood? That's basically turned into a public funeral. Well, our commitment to nonviolence means that my husband's instinct was to say, blessed are the peacemakers, and to talk about the Beatitudes, and to talk about the, the way that Jesus came into the world to absorb violence, uh, and to, to stop the cycle, to break the cycle. And so if we don't have that commitment to nonviolence, which I think is actually, um, I think, you know, I'm maybe lucky to be a New Testament scholar, because I think the commitment's actually much clearer in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. But if we don't have that commitment as a church, there's a very real sense in which our witness to the watching neighborhood, at least, is diminished. So, uh, and it's not an abstract thing, and it's not a safe thing. Like, that's the thing. Commitment to nonviolence is not, it's not safe, and it's not passive. It's actually active, and it's really scary at times. So we've had some couple, we've had a couple run-ins since we've, since we've lived there, and it's made me appreciate the power of prayer. It's made me appreciate the power of spirit, um, the spirit and the presence of God when things are legitimately scary. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I think it's a correlate of the of the gospel, um, uh, the commitment to nonviolence. I suppose for for my own students, the question can be a little bit more abstract, and so it's really refreshing to hear what you've just said, Aaron. Um, that it tends to be more. Um, about the the eschatological violence of God against those who are not in Christ. That's the, where the questions tend to um, uh, become most real for my students. I, you know, the, the uh, eternal conscious torment in hell. Um, and this comes to the fore when people are reading Revelation, and as well, and perhaps oddly, because Paul doesn't ever mention hell, also when people are reading Paul, because I think this ties in with certain constructs of what the, the gospel is. Um, I, I suppose it can be a little bit different um, for um, Old Testament scholars because the, the question is the violence of God that has taken place or is, is said to have taken place. So it might, there might be a slightly different dynamic, at least in that regard. Yeah, and, and I, think, I don't think, Chris, I don't think 
what your students are asking is really that abstract because it has to do with their conception of who God is. And, and I think to that extent, um, it, it, to the extent that it affects evangelism, that it affects their own conception and walk and relationship with God. And, and this is something over which I know, I know people who have lost their faith over this very subject. Um, in fact, I have a I, I have a friend right now who, within the past um, six months, has has walked away with the, from the faith because of the problem of violence in, in the Bible, and so so I think those questions they are concrete or abstract in very different ways, um, and you know, and Aaron and I think your your neighborhood it's it's probably uh, you know more profoundly felt at a at a at a community level and not so individualized as a problem that, um, you know, it might be in some other context, but, you know, I, I think I was the one who said, if you don't go through a phase at some point, you're not reading the Bible, um, carefully enough. And I, but I do mean that in the sense that even if you do land at a kind of just war perspective, you do, I think you still have to feel some serious tension with that perspective when you read Jesus and, and, and temper it massively. Um, and, and so for me, like, the, the call to, to be a peacemaker is front and center um, in, in a way that stands way in front of any kind of uh, re- resort to, to restraint or violence that, that, that might be taken. And I think the problem, one of the problems in the church is that the discussion gets polarized into pro-war and pacifism rather than any kind of historical rooting in in like um you know the 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 idea of just war which is which is actually a very limiting um theory and perspective yeah i always tell my students that you know that we talk about just war and pacifism like they're two opposite ends of a spectrum but really they should be you know within a hair's breadth of each other that this is not you know, this is not a just war does not mean a, a wholesale endorsement of violence. I'm always struck by the the fact that my students who have, you know, relatively little experience with violence are some of the ones who are more likely to say that they'd use violence if they were confronted with a situation that, you know, seemingly demanded it. And the students who have had experiences with violence, either in military service or in the police force, or um, because they grew up in a place where there was violence, those are the students who are much more hesitant because they've seen the effects of violence and that no matter, you know, good uses of violence, if there are any, or, you know, evil uses of violence, they, they leave a mark, no matter what violence leaves a mark. And and I think um, I had a good friend who, uh, was in the the second gulf war and he uh one of the things that he lamented was the fact that churches because churches are divided between often divided between pacifist and pro-war um you either you're faced with two options either a church that celebrates war as as a um purely in terms of heroic sacrifice or a church that 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 condemns it wholesale and he said that leaves a lot of people who have have been in the military and come home with with blood on their hands either individually or corporately with with no means of of atoning for that sin and and his his um perspective was that um while he was a a, a kind of just war adherent he said i still think it's it's wrong and and that that it is something that needs to be atoned for and the church doesn't have mechanisms for dealing with that um, when when people have returned because they're either faced with a, a parade or uh, a, a stone wall. So. Yeah, and I guess I should hasten to add that my mom uh, was a social worker for the VA for 38 years and worked with countless veterans. So I'm not in, when I say that I'm, you know, pro like Christian pacifism, it's not, it's, I'm not intending at all to be disrespectful to um, our service members. I think for me, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's a, it's a recognition that, um, that involvement in violence, uh, it leaves, it leaves scars on people and watching my, my mother, uh, you know, I mean, she's a social worker, really minister to these people. I don't know if she'd use that word, but I would. 
um, who are coming back with, uh, you know, psychological um, injury, uh, traumatic brain injury, all of those things. Uh, it just, it gave me an appreciation for how, how little there is on the back end for people who, especially in the line of military service have, um, been subjected to violence or subjected themselves to violence, but, um, and then how, how very little there is to take care of those people. Yeah, good. I, I think we're probably at the, um, we've, probably run over time here. There was one more question from J.S. Warner about, um, it's very specific about uh, Joshua and violence. And I would just, it's directed to me about the ban in in Joshua, the harem, uh, or the command to destroy all the Canaanites. Um, So I'll just point you to, I did a a seven part blog on violence in Joshua on the Theological Miscellany blog. So if you want to see my take on that, go to the fifth one where I address that. But I think we're um, going to wrap it up here. But uh, thanks everyone for uh, listening. And we really appreciate your questions. And if you have other ones for future episodes, feel free to send them to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet them to us at onscriptpodcast. Thanks. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 